Hello everyone, welcome back to The Casual Martial Artist with Al and Marcus. So it is a lovely, wonderful spring day today, and how are you doing today? Pretty good, you man? Uh, tired, because like, as I was saying before, just uh, it's overtime season at work, and but other than that, you know, not too bad. It's nice that, uh, you know, we finally got past the, you know, the part of spring around here where, of course, it's like kind of cold and rainy and then finally it starts to get you know nicer makes me want to go out and winter practice light, what's that winter light yes makes me want to go out and practice martial arts more often outside and now did when you were uh taking classes did your did you guys ever practice martial arts outside or no we only did running outside that was about it uh where i go now um sometimes when it is nice we do practice outside and uh, when I was doing American freestyle karate, uh, there was one, uh, there was a couple of times where we practiced outside. They called it street practice, mm-hmm. which actually I thought was a good idea. And I know one of the things we've planned on, like, sometime in the future doing a show about the best way to train. And when we had street practice, uh, what it was is, okay, we were practicing out in the parking lot, but instead of wearing your gi, you were in street clothes. And mm-hmm. we didn't start, we, we didn't stretch out before class. Right. And which the, the thing I liked about that is it's more realistic that way because, you know, I mean, if you're going to get in a fight, how many attackers are going to let you take, you know, 10 minutes to go stretch and warm up and, you know, uh, trying to kick in jeans is a lot hard, a lot different than trying to kick while in uh, karate gi, you know? Right. Yeah, and then when I when I did a scream, we actually would practice outside quite a bit too. Um, I mean, I don't know if you remember from Oshkosh. Do you remember Taylor Hall? Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, one of the residence halls there, and we we had there was a tree out there that my instructor affectionately called the tree of shame because whenever someone was screwing up in practice, you'd go hit on the tree to practice on that. So, wow. So that was just one of the many fun things that we did during class, but. <laughs> So today's episode, we're going to kick it, kick it old school, uh, get your kicks. And I can't think of any other clever kicking things to say right now. Kick it up a notch. Kick There you go. Uh, kick it up a notch today. So we're going to be talking all about kicks. Now, when you first started, since you started in Taekwondo, uh, I'm, I'm assuming that you guys probably did a lot of kicks in that particular style. Mm-hmm. Butt loaded. Yeah, and uh, of course, with me coming from a, when I first started in karate, uh, with Tang Sudo, kicks, of course, were a huge part of that. And I mean, I. So personally, did you ever think of kicks being more effective, less effective, or was that ever like more your preferred method of, uh, of attack? To me, it was just part of a combination. Uh, I preferred perfecting my hand techniques before kicks. Um, granted, that was my expo- uh, because of my exposure at Taekwondo first. If I'd have been exposed to Muay Thai or Savat or something like that, I probably would have, you know, been equally interested in developing my, my kicks as well as my hand techniques. It wasn't until much, much later when I studied um, different martial arts, those and a couple others that I started integrating more. But yeah, based on the Taekwondo style, I, I only took kicks as being like, oh, you know, part of my arsenal but not a huge part 
Yeah, because when I first started with Eskrima and Tank Sudo, because Tank Sudo was a bit more of an emphasis on kicking, um, the especially at the early levels, I think we, other than like straight punch and knife hand, mm-hmm. really the those were the only punches we really focused on for the, you know, at least during the few months that I was, you know, like the eight, nine months that I spent studying that particular style. Mm-hmm. And... You know, so we didn't, most of it did focus on kicks, you know, your snap kick, your your front stretch kick, which, uh, as the name implies, was always just more of a warm-up thing. It's not something you probably would use in combat. Right. Uh, you know, inside kicks, outside kick, you know, crescent kicks, um, hook kicks, spinning hook kick, uh, of course, roundhouse kick, side kick, spinning side kick, step behind side kick. So, right. yeah, we... Uh, and that's where, like with Eskrima, it was a bit different because since it focused primarily on, you know, on sticks, we did some of the empty hand stuff, but um, we didn't really do a lot of kicks. In the the years I spent studying under my Eskrima instructor, uh, the only kicks we really did were the shin kick, uh, the oblique kick, and there was another type of kick that was called the Sipa kick. It's... Similar to, uh, basically, it's like a stomping kick that you would use against the knee. Okay. Yeah, so we didn't, and then when we got into the some of the unarmed stuff, again, not really much kicking. There was more an emphasis on punching, blocking, parrying, and then joint locking. Even when I was a Taekwondo student, I always questioned the validity and effectiveness of the higher kicks. There was no YouTube back in the day, so I didn't get to see what, a uh, Muay Thai fighter would do, or a Savat fighter would do, or a Sanchu or Chinese kickboxer would do. So my only thing was watching Taekwondo tournaments, either the ones I went to or what my instructor in the higher grade belts would do in class. And even then, because, you know, being from Wisconsin, we're exposed to wrestling and being a fan of Jeet Kune Do and their grapplers, I was always like, well, what's going to happen, you know, if I throw one of those real high kicks and the guy shoots in on me and, you know, takes me down? You know, Taekwondo is not really going to help me after that. So it wasn't until I was exposed to MMA and a few people that I trained with who had experience in Muay Thai and then later on Savat that uh, kicks. I started appreciating the lower kicks, you know, below the waist and um, being able to divide what's good for training, what's good for self-defense or what's good for dueling. Like when I mean dueling, I mean something like. If you're in an MMA fight, a sparring match, or if someone that you know is is bothering you, you know, drunk and something, you want to do them, but you don't want to really hurt them. Okay. So that's how I separate that. Yeah, because um, I actually had a bit of an opposite opinion about high kicks mm-hmm. when I first started. Because uh, again, when tight in in karate, it was always a, there was always the focus on you know get those kicks nice and high. And the instructor never really said anything about the practicality of it, which is, and then again, when I was doing a scream at the same time, uh, again, the instructor there always focused on keeping your kicks low. And when I started Kung Fu the following year, I remember our, again, instructor always said that in a perfect world, you never have to kick above the waist. So he always, you know, we still practiced high kicks. But his his opinion was more like, well, we know the world's not perfect. Um, so while ideally you want to keep your kicks low, there may be times when you might need to kick high, whether you're trying to 
you know, maybe, I don't know, kick over an obstacle or something, or if you're trying to, uh, you know, kick someone who's on maybe a little higher ground than you, something like that. So now, uh, since again, it seems like you didn't really appreciate or didn't really, uh, have a high opinion of high kicks when you first started. Now, did mm-hmm. that eventually influence your decision to start studying uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? It did. That and, you know, the effectiveness seeing it in the first few UFCs against other styles that did have high kicks. Remember, in the early UFCs, nobody was winning with high kicks. The only time I saw someone win was a fighter named Jeremy Williams, and he he knew he was really good at grappling and anti-grappling, so he was able to fend off a wrestler shoot and also time the wrestler coming in to where he could land a high roundhouse kick. Otherwise, I've yet to see somebody do a crescent kick effectively or a, a high spinning, you know, one of those really fancy ones you learn in some of the arts. Yeah, and that's that's true, because I remember when I first uh, saw UFC, which, uh, again, this would have been like late 94, early 95, somewhere in there. Um, cause I, I, I mentioned, I think I mentioned before that when I, my first roommate in college, uh, he was in the martial arts, he had a background in judo and when he, I don't know if it was, he went home for Thanksgiving break or he just went home for a weekend, but I remember he brought, uh, some UFC tapes with him and then, you know, that's where I, it was like one of the earlier ones cause it, they had Hoist Gracie in it and, mm-hmm. but yeah, I remember seeing that how, yeah, the, the grapplers in there were just dominating everyone. And, um, you know, that's a trend that pretty much has continued to this day where, I mean, since I don't follow UFC as much, I'm not sure how many people out there really go far in, in MMA if they're focusing mostly on kicks. It's a more real rounded game nowadays. You can't be a pure grappler anymore and you can't be a, your striker not that you ever really could anymore yeah um unless you have both games worked on you're gonna get your your toast basically and then later on in college when i started working out with a couple of guys that did taekwondo that's when i first started learning trying to learn some of the more fancier spinning type kicks Mm -hmm. uh, because as i said i learned a fair amount of kicks when i was in tang sudo kung fu kept it more basic uh, you know, your front kick, side kick, back kick, uh, roundhouse kick, inside crescent, outside crescent. Uh, did I say hook kick? Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, yeah, again, nothing really. Oh, yes, and then the other one that we did, which was a part of some of the forms, was crane kick. And it, that was a name that I gave for, like, the, the stomping type kick you used, that we used in Eskrima, um, mm-hmm. where, you know, again, it's like you, if you like lift your knee up like you're going for a roundhouse, like a front snap kick, and then you mm-hmm. turn your foot so it's facing out and then thrust straight forward. So again, where you're usually you're going to hit on the knee, the shin, or the top of the foot. Um, right. So yeah, I never was really good at the, again, the, the jumping, spinning, really pretty looking kicks. But I mean, it was always fun to watch other people do them. Right. Right. And even if... if... Like, I was a fan of stuff like PKA way back in the day when we were, you know, when I was a little late 70s and early 80s. On the average, most of the successful people who were American-style kickboxers only concentrated on, you know, really basic round kick, roundhouse kick, side kick, front kick. 
you might see some people land a crescent or a spinning kick once in a while, but it was basically, you know, the top three. Yeah, because that's one of my one of the guys I trained with who was in Taekwondo said with like, yeah, usually front uh, with kickboxing, it's mostly yeah front and roundhouse kicks and, um, but uh, hey, I mean if those those kicks are pretty basic and I can see how, at least one thing I do like about roundhouse kicks is they can be effective whether they're hitting low or high. Mm-hmm. Now, when you did roundhouse kicks, because I've learned a couple different ways to do it. When I was first in karate. And we also do it this way in Kung Nu, where you have to like kind of curl your, point your toes back and you're hitting with like the, the ball of the foot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in Tang, in, and we also did that way in American Freestyle Karate. Kung Fu, it was different where you, instead of like, uh, you know, curling your foot back, it was more you put it out more and you were hitting with the top of the foot. Now, when you did round, when you do roundhouse kicks, did you, did you prefer one method over the other? Mine was just the chambered snap kick at first when I was in Taekwondo, but later on when I started expanding my repertoire, it became like the more Muay Thai round kick. I mean, I personally, I never liked the first way I was taught where, again, you're curling your toes back because mm-hmm. I guess the way I see it, I was I would always be afraid that I'd accidentally like land the kick wrong and jam my toes. Right. You know, so it requires a little bit more flexibility to do it, and that's what I like about when you're, you know, pointing the foot back, um, because and you're hitting with the top of the foot because it's more forgiving, and I think it also gives you a little bit more range. So I know that was one thing when I started doing martial arts with Kung Nu again, where, (laughs) I mean, I know my instructor. I, I sometimes I think she gets ready to pull her hair out because I. There's just certain kicks and strikes and stuff that I'm used to doing in a certain way from Kung Fu. But since Kung Nu takes a lot of its striking uh, influences more from like Wing Chun and Shotokan Karate, uh, it, you know, it's trying to do it in more of a hard type style, which, mm-hmm. yeah, I said, I, I think my poor instructor sometimes just wants to, <laughs> wants to kick me in the head. <laughs> right now, actually, I'm... Uh... What my philosophy is evolving into is, well, context is everything, of course, but I'm also evolving into more of kind of what you described, but because my philosophy of the roundhouse kick, especially when you have shoes on, is more like the savat fuete, which means whip, and they kind of whip it around and hit with the point of the toe. So, I mean, roundhouse, round, tie round, muay thai round kick is great for training, great for if you're in competition. Um and if you don't really want to hurt someone, but you know for sure you can incapacitate them by, by a really good roundhouse kick. But if you're really trying to like, if efficiency and taking someone out quicker is what you're after, I'd, for me at least the savat style kick would be good because the point of the toe with a shoe on, especially if you've got boots on, to the knee, or you know to the groin area or something like that to the solar plexus is going to do way more damage especially to a bigger guy than a roundhouse kick Mm -hmm. yeah and another reason that we did it the way we did in kung fu is because in karate we always practiced barefoot but in or in tanks we always did barefoot but in kung fu we actually practiced with with shoes on so and again the instructor he the reason he we did it that way is because he's like well how many people are going to walk around barefoot nowadays so, I, I mean, your your foot, 
and I can see what I can see his point. I mean, I I don't walk around barefoot unless I'm at the beach or you know at home or something. But right. uh, you know, and also it's just when you're trying to do a kick in your sh- in wearing shoes because you've got a little bit of resistance there from the shoe. It's I, I mean I don't know if I'm explaining this correctly, but sometimes it might be a little harder to like get your foot in just the right position if you're doing it with with shoes on. Um, especially in my case, since I have prescription footwear, I usually wear a, a bit sturdier, heavier shoe. So like I said, doing a roundhouse kick where I point my toes back is, is more difficult where it would be a lot easier for me to just do it where you, you know, just put my foot backwards and hit with the top. Um, right. You know, I could also see like if I could do a decent like spinning hook kick uh, again, just because of the added weight of my my shoe that would probably you know probably do more damage anyway <laughs> right because i mean isn't that what uh they did a lot in savat since they were so used to doing the uh, practicing with boots that that was kind of the point where you were trying to learn to use your body's momentum to put as much weight behind that kick as possible mm-hmm. so yeah and um you know basically my philosophy is, like I said, it's involved into more of the Sabat style kicking. I mean, it, they've integrated the uh, crescent kick into their repertoire too, especially the sports style, because that's not traditionally a Sabat technique. But since they had so many people training in Sabat after training in karate or taekwondo, that you know, it just kind of naturally evolved into the, using that in the competition. And I guess with a shoe on, it can be kind of effective. I still kind of, you know, snarl. Kind of look my nose down a little bit on a higher kick being put where it's not really uh, traditionally located, but whatever. It's, yeah. You know. So you've mentioned uh, crescent kicks. How do you feel about crescent kicks? I mean, see, because for me, I personally don't really see them as being more effective, so I don't train with them. In, I don't use them in sparring as much. I mean, I guess the way I see it is I always saw it as more of a good distractionary kick or a defensive kick. You know, like if someone's, um, you know, someone's kicking at you, you could always use like a low, you know, inside crescent kick to kind of parry their foot away. Mm-hmm. So, I, so what's your opinion in general on crescent kicks? I don't like them. Yep. I, I, in my opinion, the training time would be better spent elsewhere and uh, it puts me off balance in a way that it puts everyone that I can see trying to execute one off off balance in a way that I think is unnecessary okay, you know yeah. I'm more of a yeah yeah I can see what you're saying there yeah mm. yeah and the also one of the things this is one of the things that was different though with uh, going from karate to kung fu because with when you were first learning taekwondo um, did they focus on multiple different fighting stances, like you know, back, front stance, back stance, horse stance, and see, that's one of the things I guess I didn't like about Tang Sudo is okay. There were certain kicks we only threw from a front stance. There were only certain kicks that you know we generally only threw from a, a back stance. There were some that we only did from a you know a horse stance. Where you know I always thought Kung Fu was a little bit more effective off the bat. Because we practiced everything from the same stance, which, uh, you know, the way my instructor always described it is since you generally are keeping your weight evenly distributed and you're keeping your feet parallel to each other, it's a bit more natural 
um, and puts less pressure on your joints. And, you know, especially now being a bit older and not being in as good shape as I used to be back then, that's still one thing I struggle with sometimes in Kung Nu is because, again, since we do have that, uh, you know, that influence from Shotokan, yeah, we do the forward stances and the back stances and, I don't know, just I find the back stances just tend to put a little too much pressure on my knee and not very comfortable with them. As I recall, they had those in Taekwondo. Remember, I only made it to Yellow Belt before I had the falling out with the instructor and ended up quitting. But um, so I never really learned, you know, execution from those stances. But I tend to agree more that with the philosophy we're describing before that everything should go for more or less one stance or a variation on that. That just to me, it makes learning a lot more easy. It makes developing your curriculum a lot more easy. And given that my one of my backgrounds is in boxing, you know, everything comes from a boxing stance or, you know, a modification upon, you know, you got a couple variations in boxing, but not too much. Yeah, and that's another thing that's nice about when training everything from the same stances. It also is an easier way to keep the opponent guessing because if you can throw any kick from the same stance, I, you know, that would probably be, that's more advantageous than, okay, I have, if I want to throw a snap kick, I have to shift myself into a forward stance. Um, if I want to throw a roundhouse kick, I'm shifting into a back stance where, you know, you're, you're giving your opponent more time to react and guess what you're doing. Right. Um, now, one of the things we do in Kung Nu, which at first I wasn't too crazy about, but then I started to see a little bit more value in it, is practicing going from different stances, you know, up and down the dojo, which, and again, I don't know how you feel about that, but I think it can be helpful as a training drill because you do get, because it does help work your legs a little bit. Um, That sounds similar to something I did when I was first learning how to box. Um. Basically, I, for an hour straight, I did one single footwork maneuver. Wow. I repeated <laughs> that. And then for the next hour, did another one. And just so you can train the, you know, automatic reflexes in your muscle, that that's how you're supposed to move, you know, nothing else. And with the three people in this world that I've taught how to box, um, I've taught them the same way. So it's like they have to get through all this slogging, really monotonous stuff. But in the end, it pays, pays for itself because... You know, it's drilled in their head. Their muscles remember it. And so I kind of like that idea that you just described. Yeah, and, and like I said, I I wasn't crazy for it at first, but then after a while I did start to see the value of it. And again, as you, mm -hmm. said, as you said, it's all about getting that muscle memory down. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, yeah, I mean, if practicing a single stance for an hour straight doesn't get that muscle memory, I don't know what will. <laughs> right. Uh -huh. See, and I almost almost wonder if that's uh, something that maybe fighting instructors use as a way to kind of weed out who who they who's going to be dedicated and who's not, because they right. figure maybe they figure that okay if you can if you are willing to learn the boring, not very flashy, not very interesting or pretty looking stuff, it means right. that you know you're probably going to do better when you start getting to the point where you start learning the more difficult but flashier and prettier stuff right and with an art like boxing especially um and you could i'm sure do that do this with muay thai mma brazilian jiu-jitsu i can point out instances where a, a fighter didn't have good form or was really sloppy with something he got nailed 
and a lot of times KO'd. So I can say, okay, this is what happens when you don't do it this way. So this is why you need to know it this way. Now, another kick that I've always liked and I always thought was very practical is the sidekick. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that I guess I like about it is there's just so many different ways you can throw it. You know, you can do it from a you pivot, you can do it just straight out to your side, you can do it from a spin, a jump, all sorts of fun ways to throw it. Now, one of the things that I, again, this is another one of those things where my Kung Nu instructor probably gets is ready to punch me in the face sometimes because, again, in Kung Nu, it's always with the, the uh, sidekick, you're hitting with the bladed end of your foot, whereas mm-hmm. I've always used to doing more with, like, the heel so when you were doing sidekicks, did you did your instructor ever try to drill a, cer- a certain way of doing the kick into you? Um, yeah, in Taekwondo, it was always the the knife or the, the the edge of the foot, like you were describing the first. Um, I didn't start using the heel till again until I started studying Savat a little bit, because that's how Savat chasse they call it is delivered. It's um you know with the heel because again you're wearing shoes, so. You know, again, like I was describing, it's all about context. You know, if you're in competition or training on your heavy bag, you're gonna, you know, I, of course, I'd hit it the old old way. If I was thinking in terms of a altercation out in the wild, then of course it'd be the Savat way. But you know, both ways I see merit in. I personally always was more of the older way. I've learned where mm-hmm. again more hitting with the heel or the bottom of your foot. And I guess I get, the, maybe the way I prefer that is because, yeah, most of the time, A, I'm going to be walking around in shoes, but also I think it's a little bit more forgiving and probably gets you a little bit more power behind that than if you're trying to just, because, again, you have a larger striking surface. So, right. I mean, I don't know if one of them is really going to give you more power than the other, but I've always just felt that it's easier to generate more power when you are doing that, you know, that uh, hitting with the heel or the full bottom of your foot. Exactly. So of all the kicks that you've learned in your time training in martial arts, is there one that you think it would probably be your favorite? Probably the sidekick, especially delivered like a stop kick. You know, um, you can do it. A lot of Muay Thai guys do it with a, a teep kick or the front kind of um, toe kick. Basically, you can stop someone in their tracks when they're coming at you. You know, and you can either do it to the knee, do it to their hip, solar plexus, anywhere, or like fake doing it to their groin and you know get into their headset that way it's just so versatile you can use it for anything yeah and that's another reason i like this as i said i like the sidekick because of the versatility but i'd have to say a close second would probably be the roundhouse for me Mm -hmm. because again it's one of those things where it can be help it can be effective if you hit manage to hit someone in the face with it but it can also be effective if you can land it on you know like on the side of the leg or the knee uh, if you get your timing a little wrong, you can always still hit with the shin, which can still be effective as well. Right. So is there ever a kick that you learned where it's like you ever thought to yourself, this is the most useless kick in the world, and I don't think I would ever use this in a fight? Spinning back kick. Okay. Anything more advanced than a spinning back kick. Only any, The funny thing is that I've seen cats pull it off in competition, but I still think to me, to my mind, again, the kind of training you need to put into that. Either you're naturally good at it, which most people aren't, or you put a lot of training into it to get good at it. I just think that kind of training is better served elsewhere. Yeah, and see, I actually liked the spinning back kick, so that one I never had any problems with. But I'd have to say for me, this is one that I learned in Kung Nu a 
a couple months ago, the inverse roundhouse kick. It's like, okay, imagine like you're coming up with your, you're bringing your knee up. Mm-hmm. And, and again, this was also back to Kung Fu because in Kung Fu, everything started, just about every type of kick started from this and ended in the same chamber position. And we do that in Kung Nu um, a lot as well. But with the, round, with the inverse roundhouse kick, it's like, okay, you bring your knee up, but then what you're doing is you're like turning your foot out, you're positioning your foot like a roundhouse kick, and then kicking like that. So it's one of those kicks where I, maybe it's because I haven't really done it very long, and that's why I don't feel very confident with it. But it just seems that it doesn't have a lot of power behind it. I mean, I could see it maybe being a decent distraction kick if you manage to hit it like on the inside of the thighs. But right. other than that, it's like, okay, I don't think I'd ever use that kick in a real fight or sparring. I agree. With me, my philosophy is, um, again, keep it basic. Front kick and variations thereof, side kick variations thereof, and roundhouse kick variations thereof. I've seen champions built with less, you know, people, guys win titles in Muay Thai and UFC with a lot less in their arsenal than that, so... Um, I just think if you can perfect those three, you pretty much got it, you know, what you need. Everything else is just maybe not, not necessary. Yeah. And, you know, I can certainly agree with that. I mean, definitely, uh, I mean, you know, the less is more or sometimes the simplest techniques. And I think even if you talk to a highly skilled martial artist, um, I think they would certainly agree that sometimes, yeah, the simplest techniques are the best. Because especially if you're in a real fight, uh, you know, out in the street, you might not be in that right state of mind where, you know, you might panic a lot or you might, you know, you're not always going to be thinking clearly. So you can all those intricate or complex techniques you've learned, you can pretty much kiss those goodbye. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's where I can see the the simplest techniques are probably going to be the best. So. And I would definitely agree with what my Kung Fu instructor always said. Yeah, in a perfect world, you'll never have to kick above the waist. So I would definitely say kicks are best kept low, in my opinion. Which is kind of right. strange considering how do I end the show saying keep your kicks above the belt? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, I don't know. I guess kicking in the stomach isn't, you know, isn't particularly high and... uh I don't know. See, I just kind of, we just kind of made up that keep your kicks above the belt thing. Uh, you know, that's just kind of came out of the fly. But I guess another reason I always thought about that is like, well, in a way we're kind of saying play fair. Or, you know, don't be a jerk, you know. <laughs> right, especially in sparring. No need to hurt your training partners. Yes, kicking people in the groin intentionally is a good way to to uh, lose people who want to spar with you. So. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, thanks for tuning in, everyone, and hopefully uh, we didn't ramble too much. I mean, I know I didn't really plan a lot for this uh, particular episode, and I, I, but still, I kicking. I think it's it's interesting. I mean, I would have to say I would love it if I could one of these days if I could ever actually do one of those fancy like jump in the air, spin around three times, and kick something and actually hit. Uh, would you ever try to aspire to do something like that, or do you think you're going to keep yourself more grounded? Yeah, I'm going to keep myself more grounded. Yeah, I'm one of those people who um, I, 
very, very, very traditionalist when it comes. Well, not really traditionalist because those kicks all exist in traditional martial arts. But I'm very, very um, set my ways, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks again for joining us, everyone. And until next time, we'll talk to you later. And again, keep those kicks above the belt and below the face. Hey! This is Adventures Anthology, or what we lovingly call D&DAA. We're a native Green Bay group of four players and our DM, Micah Brault, who all come from different backgrounds and have different experiences and skill levels within Dungeons & Dragons. Our campaign takes place in a created homebrew universe of various genres, and we have a tasty cocktail drink every session. We'll have one-shots with special guests like Blake McClellan from Mindless Productions. We run raffles for miniatures, and potentially, we'll do some meetups in the future. So come check out our website and join the conversations at Adventures Anthology on Spotify. So if you like Dungeons & Dragons, role-playing, and drinking shots to craft cocktails, check us out. Thank you. have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POIGamestudio.